Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you to come to that, to the family Christmas gathering. I know you heard them say they could use volunteers as well, so if you're interested in that, uh, we'd love to have you come and help out with that event. If you're picking up, I don't know, the faintest hint of soy in the air, it's because over the course of the last few days, we have had Feed My Starving Children here in this room uh, and we packed, I don't remember the number, but somewhere north of 650,000 meals uh, for hungry kids, for hungry people over the course of that time. Yeah. And we are so thankful to those who made that possible and those who cleaned up afterwards so that you're not actually walking through the soy as you come in today. Thank you for that. My wife and I, we could have continued living as dating people for our entire lives. Uh, we could have kept dating and had kids, and we could have kept dating and moved into a house, and we could have kept dating and driven the cars that we drive. But at some point, we decided that we wanted to make a commitment to each other, actually a covenant with God. And so we entered into marriage with each other. And in that same way, a person can go on dating the church forever. But at some point, people are often led by God to say, no, no, I want to make a commitment. In this low-commitment culture, I don't want to be like that. I want to make a commitment to a church, and that commitment is called church membership. And today, we have an opportunity to honor those who've become church members over the course of the last quarter. Oh, you can see them up there on the screen. I'm going to read the names, and we'll see how many I screw up, okay? Andy Schwant, Andy and Sage Labinsky, Sabrina Chichura, Sabrina Chichura, Kimberly Weddle, Jason Weddle, Trevor Scott, Kaylee Zaire. Kaylee, if I got that last name wrong, come and see me afterwards. I'm sorry. The next two I can get right, Dan and Maggie Clausen, Andrew Moss, Jill Moss, and Jim Ludeman. Yet we are so thankful for the commitment they've made. They've come to this church and said, we want that to be our church. And when they enter into membership, we as a congregation look at them and say, yeah, and we want you to be our person through thick or thin. Through good and bad, uh, we are joining ourselves together. And so we're excited about those members. And I invite you to join me as we pray for God's blessing upon them. Father, we're so thankful for those who have entered into membership over the course of this last quarter. And we ask that your spirit would be at work in and through them, bringing greater and greater praise to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in a short little sermon series entitled Marriage and Sexuality. Last week, Pastor Kenny talk, talked about God's design for marriage. And this week, I get to talk about God's design for sex. Yay for me. <laughs> right? Can you say short straw? Yeah. Mm. Next week, we're going to be talking about how forgiveness and restoration are vi and victory are possible if we've had failure in this area, which so many of us in the room have had. Let's acknowledge from the very beginning this morning that sex is a subject that makes us uncomfortable, especially the person who has to talk about it from the front. So why are we doing it? 
We're doing it because it's not just a subject that makes us uncomfortable. It is also an extremely important subject where God's design for marriage and sexuality and the world's practice towards marriage and sexuality are so very different from one another and they're growing further and further apart with each passing year. And God says it is imperative that we live in our lives of marriage and sexuality according to the design that he has made if we're going to experience life the way he designed it and flourishing the way that he wants us to. God made people for sex, and it is a great gift from him. But it can be incredibly damaging if not used the way that he designed. Last week, uh, Kenny used a great illustration that I'm just going to steal, uh, borrow. Well, I'm not giving it back. I don't know. You figure that out. This is the time of year when my wife and I will have a fire in the fireplace in our family room. And when that fire is in the fireplace, it's a blessing. It provides warmth for the room. It's beautiful. My wife even says it's romantic. But what happens to that fire when I take it out of the fireplace where it's designed to be and bring it into the dining room, bring it into the living room, and it starts burning up the dining room table, burning up the couches in the living room, climbing the walls, and pretty soon I've got a disaster on my hand. Because fire is beautiful blessing when it's where it's designed to be. And it is dangerous and damaging when it isn't. All of God's gifts are that way. All of them are that way. Food. Food is a great gift from God. He has designed us to enjoy it in moderation. But when food leaves the fireplace and is treated in a way that God didn't design it to be treated, so that people are involved in gluttony, looking for happiness from my next meal, or gorging, eating too much, or disorders where we reject food or eject food, we have taken what God designed and moved it outside of the fireplace, and it becomes damaging and dangerous. Work is a great gift from God. I can see on your faces, you're like, eh, nope, not mine. Okay, God did say with sin, work becomes hard. But in Genesis chapter 2, before that, he gives it, to us, gives it to us as a great gift. And within that great gift, we are meant to provide for ourselves, provide for society. We're supposed to be able to earn money so that we can give to those who are in need. It is a great gift of God. But Satan just takes that great gift and he twists it a little bit so that it becomes workaholism. He twists it a little bit so that it becomes getting your identity from your work. He twists it a little bit so that it becomes working for the weekend. And all of a sudden, what is beautiful when it's used the way it is designed becomes dangerous and damaging to us. That's the way all of God's gift works. Satan's intention isn't to try and get rid of God's good gifts. Satan's intention is to try and take his good gifts and twist them a little bit so that they're brought outside of the fireplace and do damage to people's lives. And of course, that is nowhere more true than in the area of sex. Jesus gives us the basics about sex in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, a passage that Pastor Kenny read last week, he gives us the basics about marriage and sexuality when he is asked a question about divorce. And as he is answering that question about divorce, Jesus reaffirms his own intentions 
for marriage and sexuality that he created from the beginning. He affirms that marriage is for a husband and a wife. Look, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We notice right off the bat that Jesus says God made two sexes, male and female. We live in a world that wants to separate gender from sex and allow people to claim an ever-growing list of gender identifiers. Jesus wants us to understand this is an authority issue. Am I in charge? Are my feelings in charge? Or is my maker ultimately in charge? Jesus says it is our maker who is ultimately in charge. Our feelings, longings, and declarations are all subservient to what our maker says to be true as he makes us male and female. Jesus says that God made men and women and instituted marriage so that they could become one flesh. Now, one flesh intimacy goes beyond the simple joining physically that happens within the marriage relationship. But it also includes the physical joining that takes place within the marriage relationship. Right? Do you understand what I just said? Yes, it's, it's broader than sexual intimacy, but it also certainly includes that. When he says men and women are designed in marriage to come together and become one flesh, Jesus teaches his own purpose as our designer for sexuality and affirms what the Bible says from beginning to end, that sexual relationship has been designed for a man and a woman within marriage. Why? Why has God designed us to be sexual creatures? Why has God designed us to have sexual relationships within our marriages? Let me give you five reasons. And these are important because the reasons why God has given it to us, it, it governs everything about this in our lives. First of all, God has given us sexual relationship within our marriage to express our unity and oneness and grow our unity and oneness. When we join together physically within marriage, it expresses the intimacy that we have throughout our relationship and it grows that intimacy within our relationship. We join together physically. Two shall become one flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, we also join together spiritually. There is a mingling of souls that takes place when we enter into sexual relationship with someone else. We also bond with another person biochemically. Scientists tell us that when a man and a woman enter into sexual relationship with each other, there is a release of large amounts of oxytocin within the body. Oxytocin is a chemical that is released that bonds us, among other things. So that when a mother is breastfeeding her child, there are large releases of oxytocin that takes place in order to create mother-child bond within that process. The only other time that there are releases of oxytocin that rival that are when a man and a woman are together in a sexual relationship. They are bonded biochemically together. And so the Bible teaches us we become what we are glued together physically, spiritually. 
biochemically and mentally. We are glued together. Can you imagine taking that kind of gluing together that God designed and beginning to treat it as a disposable relationship? That's exactly what happens in our culture. And it has serious consequences. God gave us this to express and grow in oneness. The second purpose that God has given us sex within our marriages is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are told the primary reason that God has given marriage to us is what? So that we will reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. That a husband and a wife, the purpose for them in marriage is to reflect the unity, oneness, and love that Christ has with his bride, the church. And that is true in every area of our marriages, including the sexual relationship. As a matter of fact, throughout the scriptures, sexual infidelity is used by God as an illustration of his people's infidelity to him in relationship. When the people wander off into idolatry, God uses sexual infidelity as a picture to show what they're doing in their relationship with him. In the same way, sexual fidelity, faithfulness, is used as a picture of the people's beautiful faithfulness to God at times. And in that same way, God has designed the marriage relationship so that when a husband and a wife come together physically, it is a beautiful picture of the unity and love of Christ and His church. It's meant to be a constant reminder to that husband and wife of the beauty between Christ and His church. Second reason, to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. The third reason, for procreation, so that we will be fruitful and multiply. Did you guys figure that one out on your own? That it's for that purpose? As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 6, God says part of the reason husbands and wives are brought together is so that they can bring up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we know we're ready to have kids when we are excited about discipling young people, bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The fourth reason that God has designed sex for marriage is for spiritual growth. The Bible says that everything in this life is designed for the good of the person who loves God. Ephesians, or Romans 8.28. And then in the very next verse, Romans 8.29, he says, that good is becoming like Jesus. Right? Remade in his image. He says, I define that good, and that good is being remade in the image of Christ. And so everything in this life is designed to help the believer be remade into the image of Jesus. Well, what does that look like? It's more loving, less selfish. And God has designed the sexual relationship for a husband and a wife to regularly grow in greater love and thoughtfulness towards the other and grow away from selfishness. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Husbands, wives, your bodies are not your own. They're meant to be used for the other. And God says, I, I want you to grow more like Christ. This is a, a primary way that husbands and wives have an opportunity to do that. The final reason God has given us sexual relationship in marriage is for husbands and wives to experience pleasure together. You don't have to read very far into the Song of Solomon before you realize, hey, there's meant to be some pleasure in this relationship. Right? That's God's design, that husbands and wives would enjoy this together. 1 Corinthians 7 says, husbands and wives don't deny each other this. The implication is, it's going to be fun, guys. It's going to be pleasurable and you're going to want to do it. So don't deny each other this. 
this pleasure. And dare I say that like every other pleasure that we experience on this planet, it is meant to point our eyes and our hearts towards the greatest and eternal pleasures that we will have in heaven. Psalm 1611, we will enjoy eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And every pleasure we experience in this life is simply meant to push our eyes and hearts towards those greatest and eternal pleasures that he has for us. That may not be a complete list of God's purpose for the sexual relationship in marriage, uh, but it's, it's a pretty good one. And we're about to see that it differs greatly from the world's values that govern sex and sexuality. The values of the world towards sexual relationships starts with self-rule. I'm in charge of my life. I make the rules. My feelings lead and govern. God isn't in charge here. The second value that governs the the world's uh, relationship with sexuality is that love is a feeling. The Bible affirms again and again that love is a sacrificial and generous choice towards someone else, right? God so loved that he gave This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. The Bible affirms love is about a sacrificial giving, a sacrificial choice that we make. For decades, maybe centuries, the world has been affirming that love is primarily about a feeling that you have, a feeling of butterflies, a feeling that comes with that infatuation, and that you have to follow that feeling if you're going to experience fulfillment in this life. God says, no, that's not what love is. And you can just look to me and the way I express love in order to understand that. The third value of the world towards sexuality is that sexuality is my identity and fulfillment. I need to live out my feelings in this area of sexuality to have identity and fulfillment. In the scripture, God promises fullness of life that is completely apart from anything sexual. He says, fullness of life is found in relationship with me. Contentment in life is found in relationship with me. Genuine identity is found in relationship with me. It has nothing to do with sexuality and sexual practice. As a matter of fact, we see person after person in the Bible who lives their entire life and never has a sexual relationship, who lives in the fullness of God. Jesus, Paul, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist. We we go on and on with person after person who never had a sexual relationship in their life and yet lived in the fullness of joy that God brings into a person's life. The world argues, no, your, your sexuality is needed for your identity and for your fulfillment as a person. And God says, no, 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 that's me. I'm needed for your identity and fulfillment as a person. The final value that governs the world's understandings of sexual relationship is, it's my bedroom, it's my house, it's my business. You can't tell me what to do in my bedroom. You can't tell me what to do in my house. The believer understands that God is the authority in the most public of places and in the most private of places in our life. He is the ultimate authority in our bedrooms. The world says, no, 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 no. I'm the ultimate authority, and you can't tell me what to do in my home. God can't, no one tells me what to do. Uh, It's my bedroom, my business. Because of these values, we've seen increases recently in incestuous marriage. Uh, A dad in Pennsylvania who recently married his adult son. 
The argument is love's love. I mean, if that's the way they're feeling, who can tell them that's wrong? Who can tell them what to do in their own house? That's why we've seen an increase in cases of polyamorous marriage. In Nevada, six people recently sued in order to all marry each other. Who are you to tell them that marriage can only be between a couple of people? I mean, if their house is their house and you can't tell them what to do, and love is love and I just need to follow whatever my feelings are, who are you to tell them that that's wrong for six people to all marry each other? If I'm the ultimate authority and I need to carry out whatever my longings are for happiness and whatever happens in my bedroom is my business, then why would there ever be any lines drawn about right and wrong in this area? There is an ever-growing chasm between the ways of the world and the way of God in this area. And Jesus affirms what the Scripture affirms throughout any sexual expression outside of husband and wife marriage is sin. Any sexual expression outside of husband and wife marriage is sin. And the Bible clearly defines the following seven different sins that don't fall within God's design for marriage. Sin number one, adultery, cheating. The National Science Foundation at the University of Chicago has been studying infidelity since the early 1970s. And what they have found is that every decade, there is a greater percentage of people committing adultery than the decade before for the last 50 years. Study out of the University of Washington found that infidelity rose by over 15% between 1991 and 2016. 15% increase in infidelity in 25 years. Think about how many years it would take if that continued before every relationship was an unfaithful relationship. That is an enormous jump in the percentages. This is fire moved out of the fireplace. And it damages people's souls, it damages relationships, and it damages society. The second sin that the Bible describes is incest. In our country, this problem continues to grow each decade. One in four girls is sexually abused by someone close to them while growing up. One in four. One in six boys is sexually abused by the time they turn 18. I want to say, if you're here today and you have experienced this, how sorry I am that you have gone through this. Uh, That we, we love you, we want to care for you, We want to pray for you. However you are battling through this, we we want to battle with you. And we are so sorry that this has happened in your life. Someone in your life took fire out of the fireplace, and it does damage. It does damage. The third sin is bestiality. God says, shepherds, I don't care how many months it's been just you and the sheep, they are off limits. Right? And that is as far as I am going to go with that one. Right? Who is glad that is as far as I am going to go with that one? <laughs> Yikes. The fourth sin is fornication. Fornication is a, a broad, an old word, and a broad word within the scriptures used for any sexual relationship outside of marriage, but particularly focused, when the Bible uses it, on a sexual relationship between two single people. We live in a world in which the idea of waiting to have a sexual relationship until you are married is seen as incredibly old-fashioned. Why don't we just go back to churning our own butter 
and ride in horse-drawn carriages if we're going to ask people to wait to have sexual relationship until marriage. The world encourages hookups for the sake of pleasure-seeking. And young people, more young people, according to surveys than not, believe that you should live with someone and experience sexual relationship with them before marrying them than believe the other way. The results of this culture have been catastrophic. A study in the American Journal of Health and Behavior reported that women who had more than one sexual partner over their lifetime are far more likely to suffer from depression than are their monogamous counterparts. They're far more likely to suffer from addiction, seven times more likely to attempt suicide. A national study by Rutgers University, and, and can we just pause here for a minute and acknowledge that the studies that I'm talking about are not coming out of Christian institutions or Christian universities, right? The University of Washington, Rutgers University, their study found that couples that had a sexual relationship before marriage were 30% more likely to divorce after marriage than those who did not. 30% more likely. Among couples who had a sexual relationship before marriage, the woman is twice as likely to be abused in the relationship and three times as likely to suffer from depression during her lifetime. There is a danger in taking the design of the designer out of the fireplace. And we have experimented with that, and now we are experiencing the consequences of not using what he has given us as a good gift in the way that he designed. The fifth sin that the Bible talks about is lust. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, Have you heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You, you want to stare at your wife and crave for her? Go ahead, do it all day long. But Jesus says, if you move that craving and that longing out of that relationship, that's sinful and wrong. It isn't a problem to see an attractive person. It isn't a problem to acknowledge that a person is attractive. The problem begins when there is a craving or a longing towards that person. Pornography is the industry of craving and lust. 2018 study, listen to this, over 50% of recent divorcees said that pornogra regular pornography use played a major role in their divorce. Over 50% of recent divorcees said pornography use played a major role in their divorce. In a survey around the same time conducted among evangelical churches, 68% of men who identified as evangelical Christians said they regularly, not occasionally, but regularly watch or look at porn. 25% of women in evangelical churches said that they did. This lust falls well short of God's design. And it does damage to our relationship with God, with others, and to our own soul. And I dare say that there are a number of people in this room who are quietly and secretly losing the battle to pornography and lust in their lives. And, and while this will be the subject for next week, I just want to affirm that there's no victory in this area as long as it is a secret battle. As long as you are battling on your own. God has meant for us to fight together in this. More on that next week. The sixth sin that the Bible talks about is homosexuality. 
We're going to pause here for a minute because in our society, this more than any other sin on the list is being celebrated. And if you won't celebrate it, you're seen as narrow and bigoted. What God calls sin is being celebrated as virtue. And so what is the follower of Jesus Christ who submits their life to him and takes his word seriously? What what are we meant to do about that? Let me give you four things. Not a complete list, but four things. First of all, we call sin, sin. In the places where, in the Bible where homosexual activity is condemned, it is not confusing, but very plain. Read Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and what we see is the clear teaching that homosexual activity is contrary to God's design and is wrong. The word used in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 was the word used within Greek writing for general homosexual practice. Again, it was a widely used word. It isn't vague or confusing. It's just not popular. Romans 1 couldn't be clearer when it says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He's going to define what that impurity looks like in a couple of verses. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says, the sexual sin of homosexuality that we're about to talk about, it is a direct result of people trading in the authority of the creator and claiming the authority themselves as the creature. It is the direct result of people giving up on God's creation purposes of his authority and instead indulging in idolatry, sin, and dysfunction. And because people indulge in idolatry, sin, and dysfunction, God gives them over to these lusts. What lusts? For this reason. For the reason of giving up God's way and taking on our own way. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Within themselves, the the Greek word there is suke or soul. Within your soul, the due penalty. What Romans 1 is saying is the more sinful broken and dysfunctional society and families become, the more we reject God's way and live out our own way, the more same-sex attraction and same-sex activity you will see as God gives over to those lusts. Homosexual activity in these verses in Romans is a direct result of the sin, dysfunction, and idolatry of the previous verses. It used to be popular to say that uh, homosexuality is genetic. That ultimately people are just born that way and that it's in our DNA. Particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of discussion about finding a gay gene. But for over 30 years, scientists have known that same-sex attraction isn't found in our genetic makeup. For the last 30 years, Scientists and social scientists have been conducting studies on identical twins when it comes to same-sex attraction. Identical twins because they have the same DNA makeup. And what they have found is that when one twin identifies as same-sex attracted, more often than not, the other twin 
who has the same genetic material does not identify as same-sex attracted. As a matter of fact, in the most recent and wide-ranging study done of hundreds of identical twins, when one identical twin identifies as same-sex attracted, 80% of the time, the other identical twin does not identify as same-sex attracted, despite having the same DNA, the same genetic makeup. A better understanding comes out of the University of Chicago. Can we all acknowledge that the University of Chicago is about as far from a Christian institution as you can find? But what they have found at the University of Chicago is that there is a high rate, as they have studied men, of same-sex attraction in men who had similar early childhood experiences and environments. There was a much higher percentage of same-sex attraction among men who had absentee fathers or were sexually, physically, or emotionally abused in their young life. These studies are affirming what Romans says. The more we abandon God, the more we abandon his way, the more our families result in dysfunction, carry out the dysfunction of sin and idolatry, the more we are going to see same-sex attraction and same-sex practice within our society. As the world has veered further and further from the design of God, you have seen churches veer away from God's truth to varying degrees. Some have veered to the point of promoting with pride their gay clergy. Others have veered to the point of advertising themselves as open and affirming. Still others, in a much more wide-ranging issue among the evangelical church, have compromised, not by declaring themselves to be open and affirming, but by remaining silent from their pulpits because they know that this subject is controversial and they don't want to lose bodies and bucks. Right? We must never compromise. What God calls sin, we call sin. We call sin, sin. Second, we recognize as followers of Jesus that the sin is in the act. I want us to recognize that in the places where the Bible says that homosexual practice is wrong, that it's homosexual practice that it condemns. We have believers in this room today who are battling same-sex attraction. We have believers in this room today who don't regularly battle same-sex attraction, but at some point in their life experience temptation in this area. Many of our brothers and sisters who experience this desperately wish this was not their battle. What is condemned in the New Testament is homosexual practice. Temptation to do something and doing it are two different things. Right? Temptation to do something and doing it are two different things. And our job and desire as Jesus' followers is to support those in our church who recognize the sin of homosexual activity but are battling temptation in this area. I heard a speaker uh, just a few weeks ago who battles same-sex attraction but is following after Jesus. He said, I I'm living as a celibate man. I have given up sexual activity in my life. He, he says, I... I understand this to be the gift of singleness that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. He said, of course I'm going to give up my attractions and desires to follow Jesus because he's called all of his followers to give up everything to follow him. He says the call to sacrificially give up everything in our life to follow Jesus isn't unique to my situation. It's true of every person who's going to be a follower of Jesus.
Now, there's more challenging areas for some of us than for others, but we want to be a people who love and support and care for our fellow believers who are fighting this battle, just as they care and pray for us in our struggles. We recognize the sin is in the act. Third, we object to homosexual practice out of love for God and people. Right? We, we uh, object to homosexual practice out of love for God and people. Disapproving of homosexual practice is not uniquely Christian. Uh, I grew up in the 1980s in a town northwest of here called St. Cloud. And in elementary school and middle school and high school, I grew up with a whole group of guys who all verbally disapproved of homosexual practice, who regularly used names for gay people as slurs in their life. They disapproved of homosexual practice. None of them were following Christ. None of them were Christians. To object to homosexual practice is not uniquely Christian. What is uniquely Christian is to object to homosexual practice out of a deep love for God and love for other people. To be a Christian is to love God above all other things in our life. He's the priority of our life. His commands lead us in everything. And so if we love God and love Jesus, we're going to see the things of the world the way that he sees them. And we're going to call the things of the world whatever he calls them. And so as Christians, we object to homosexual practice because of our deep love for God. He's the priority of our life. But we also do so out of a deep love for people. Loving people isn't telling people what they want to hear. Loving people isn't telling people what's popular. Loving people is telling people the truth gently, compassionately, but it's still the truth. It doesn't matter how firmly you believe that jumping on 35 North is the way to get to Iowa. It doesn't matter how firmly you believe uh, or that all society affirms that jumping on 35 North is the way to get to Iowa. If I tell you, yeah, go ahead, jump on 35 North, I'm sure you'll get to Iowa. I don't love you. Right? Loving you means saying, no, 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 no. Contrary to what you believe, contrary to what all of society is saying, 35 South is the pathway to Iowa. And because we love people, we speak truth in gentleness and compassion, but truth. Finally, we show love and compassion to all people. We believe that every person must be afforded kindness, respect, and dignity. Every person is made in the image of God, and the believer is called to love everyone, even those they disagree with, even those who are their persecutors. We are called to love them and to be praying for them. Hateful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed toward any individual are to be rejected they are not of Christ. Right? We are in the midst of disagreement to show love and compassion to all people. If you want to read more about this, there's a lot of different books that I could commend to you, but let me just uh, recommend one really good, easy read. It's called Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. It is the story of her moving out of this lifestyle and becoming a follower of Jesus, but it also uh, walks through biblical principle after biblical principle related to this topic. Uh, again, Jackie Hill Perry, uh, Gay Girl, Good God. I recommend it uh, highly to you. The final sin, all right, finally, sin number seven, 
selfish sex in marriage. It is very possible to avoid all these other sins that we've talked about and only have sex within the marriage relationship and still move sex outside of the fireplace in a way that is damaging and destructive. As a matter of fact, it happens all the time when husbands and wives approach their sexual relationship with selfishness. The world's approach to the sexual relationship is one that is selfish. I'm going to get some. God says that should never be the Christian person's attitude towards the sexual relationship within their marriage. Instead, we are to consider others better than ourselves. 1 Corinthians 7 says to husbands and wives, your bodies are not your own. They're to be used for the good of the one that you're married to. And so God calls us to be people who are loving other first when it comes to our sexual relationship. We move fire out of the fireplace when we practice sexual relationship in our marriages in a selfish way. I have the opportunity to do a lot of premarital counseling. And for those that I get to run through a a full uh, gamut of premarital counseling, there's almost always one session where we deal with sex. You guys, when they come to that particular session and find out that we are talking about sex, you should see the joy on their faces. (laughs) I mean, the utter radiant. We get to talk to our pastor about sex. This is as good as it gets, right? What I tell them is what I affirm for you. The key to a holy, H-O-L-Y, a key to a holy and great sex life for couples is the same as the key to a great relationship. Open communication and love that puts the other person first. Open communication. Some people have grown up within homes where it's just, hey, that's naughty, hey, that's naughty, hey, that's naughty. And beginning to communicate openly about it is hard, but we have to get there. Open communication and a love that always seeks to put the other person first. That's God's call for husbands and wives in every part of their marriage and particularly within the sexual relationship. God has designed sex as a gift for husbands and wives within the sexual relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, he's like, you guys, uh, have at it within the marriage relationship. Don't deny each other. This is pleasurable. It's good. He says, this is a gift from me. But when we take that great gift and we move it outside of its design purpose, it's destructive and it's damaging. And it may be that you're here this morning and the question that you're asking is, what do I do? I've moved fire outside of the fireplace. As I think about these things, I can think about a time 20 years ago, two years ago, two weeks ago, where I moved fire outside of the fireplace. What do I do? Can I be forgiven if I've moved fire outside of the fireplace? Is there the possibility of restoration? Is there the possibility of victory? Well, that is what our sermon is going to be about next week. We're going to talk about that next week. And if I can provide a little bit of a spoiler, the answer is yes. Right? There's absolutely victory, forgiveness, restoration, in the work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, (gasps) will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, a city where the sexual sins uh, were so overt and horrific they would embarrass us this day. And he says, I know that many of you have been involved in that life, but Jesus has saved you. Such were some of you. You've been washed, completely and entirely cleansed, You've been sanctified, declared holy. You've been justified. You've been declared right in the courtroom of God. Why? Because you're awesome. No, what does he say here? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Because of his great work in your life. We're going to enter into a time in which we observe the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, we're going to celebrate the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we not be particularly focused on the sins in this area that we've been talking about today? And when we move to the table, I want us to be entirely focused on on His great grace and His great mercy in our lives. And so would you take a couple of minutes to just bow your heads and confess sins in this area to God? To just spend some time, whether the sins were 25 years ago, two years ago, two weeks ago, whatever that is. Just spend some time confessing your sin before God. We recognize that for the believer we're told that if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, and he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us. From how much of our trespasses? He will cleanse us from all of our trespasses. Oh, Jesus, we're thankful for that. As we go to the table today, our sins in this area may be before us. I want you to recognize as you go to the table that Jesus' mercy and grace are greater than your sins. That there's ultimate forgiveness and newness of life available because of what he did, he did because of the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so as you make your way to the tables today, Be thinking about the mercy and the grace of our God that cleanses you. All of us have sin. All of us have mess. Most of us in the room have sin and mess in this area. But we can have forgiveness and freedom through Jesus. Let's celebrate that at this table together. Would you stand with me? And when your hearts are ready, you can make your way to the tables that are in the four corners of the room. And let's praise Jesus' name together as we celebrate his mercy and grace in our lives.